I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're listening to Text Message with me, Nate Langson. And me, Ian Morris. And can't really avoid this, so it'll be brief, but thorough. Pokemon Go. Yes. Now, something interesting happened to me the other day in an evening. I had just given a talk at an event, well, hosted a panel rather at an event, was feeling very grown up, came back from a train, and my girlfriend was playing Pokemon Go all the live long journey. And when we got out of the station, we realized there was a bunch of kids outside the station also playing Pokemon Go. And the deaf thing is, we ended up talking to them for about five minutes. We, we ended up doing, um, I kid you not, a fist bump with an 18-year-old emo. It felt fantastic. But it was this really weird experience where the craze has become so deep so quickly in the UK. And, and, you know, I know this is true of other countries, too, that we've got to the point where people like me can get off a train and end up fist bumping teenagers in the street while we catch a Psyduck. Now, this to me is so bizarre. And I sort of thought... If Brexit is going to rip the country in two, then Pokemon Go may glue bits of us back together. And I thought that was quite a nice a quite a nice experience from the, the game's first days here. I must have I must admit, I, so we went out today. Um I've been, I've been around, I've been around quite a lot. I haven't seen a huge amount of people obviously playing it. I've seen some. But uh I w- went for a walk with my son. We were gonna go to the park. Uh, and I saw a kid and his mum and sister, and he had an iPad, obviously a 4G one, and he was playing. And he said he told me where the nearest Pokestop was, which I thought was quite sweet. Um, and he said he'd caught a, an Eevee. And I was like, mm, I've already got an Eevee, but I can always do with another Eevee. Um, and uh, so I, 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 I had a look around. And in fact, I did find one, but I'm, I was unable to capture it. So he did better than me. Um, but then again, today driving back i saw a girl looking at her phone and then she did a sort of an air fist pump and i can only assume that she caught something good i mean you just don't get news that good in a text message do you usually like no. that was definitely a pokemon catch i i'm yeah. sure of it and in my imagination it is anyway Absolutely, absolutely. No, and it's so I wanted to put some numbers against this. And, you know, the the curiosity for me was always going to be whether this would repeat the success across the UK in the way that it's done in New Zealand, Australia and the US. And my, my hunch was that it would. And obviously it has. And I found a, a reporter, a good writer by uh, Sebastian Anthony on Ars Technica, who wrote that EE said that 500,000 new players signed up for Pokemon Go on Thursday, which is the day it launched, which works out at six new trainers or you know gamers on, on the game every single second. So half a million signed up in a day. That's just on EE, and that's, and that's one of five mobile networks. Admittedly, it's the biggest, but still. So the extrapolation here, again, according to Sebastian's write-up on, uh, on ours, is that since EE has a market share of about 40% of the UK, and you assume, probably fairly, that gamers are probably signing up in roughly equal proportions across Vodafone 3 and O2, um, it, we could have seen about 2 million 
Pokemon players in the UK from the first day. Two million. uh, That's pretty big, isn't it? Yeah. There's about 40,000 smartphone users in the UK. So we're looking at somewhere probably between 5 and 10% of all smartphone players are playing Pokemon Go right now. I'm sure you said 40,000 smartphone owners. I meant 40 million. 40 million. Right. That's a huge number. So that's interesting. That is really interesting. Absolutely fascinating development here. Now, Ian, um, obviously, as a grown man, you want to walk around popping the proverbial balloons of children, uh, leaving nothing but tears in your wake. (laughs) Now, you've written a post that I thought would be worth mentioning here about basically how to cheat in Pokemon Go. Now, as a... 30-something man with two children. Um, Time is limited. That's why you've got to cheat. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You you wrote uh, this uh, presumably for for younger people. Well, no, um, because I don't don't necessarily think it's that practical because what these guys did was post a video on YouTube that shows them attaching a phone to a drone uh, and sending it off to sort of walk around. And um, because of the way you have to hatch eggs and stuff like that, obviously you need to cover a distance. Well, it's not obvious. Can you explain the whole well, hatching? Well, okay, yeah, yes, so it's not obvious, is it? Because it wasn't obvious to me. Basically, you uh, you collect eggs, and they're a really good way of um, getting really good Pokemon. Uh, but uh, they, they come in three varieties. There's a two-kilometer walk, a five-kilometer walk, and a 10K walk. I believe that's right, yeah. Um, so obviously 10k is quite a long way to walk. So these guys have obviously strapped it to a drone, fly it around. Obviously the eggs will hatch a lot quicker. Also, it means you can visit Pokestops that are not as close to you geographically. And it means you could even go to go to the gym, as it's known in Pokemon parlance, which is basically to fight for a, a, a podium position on, you know, with, with your champion Pokemons without actually leaving the house. Which is kind of useful, especially around here. That there are not a lot of pokey stops or uh, you know uh, gyms handy. So uh, this is all just ridiculous, isn't it? The whole thing well, is absurd. The, the, the other the other techniques I've heard, and I and I heard the well, one of them was from Kate, my girlfriend, who has been playing obsessively to the point of carrying around two battery packs in an event we went to at the weekend. Um, tried strapping one to a rotating fan. To okay. try and get the eggs to hatch. And the other, in fact, this came from you via text an hour ago, is strap it to the cat, <laughs> yes. which we haven't done. But also, apparently, you can strap it to a model train. And we have one of those here, a battery-powered one. So I may give that a crack. Excellent. Well, hopefully excellent, the egg will... Excellent, <laughs> excellent. <laughs> yes, indeed. Um, it's safe to say, I imagine, that many of our listeners are Pokemon goers, or they have kids or friends who are Pokemon goers. If you've had an intriguing experience in Britain, have you found a corpse in a river? <laughs> Let us know. What is your favourite Pokestop? Have you stumbled off a, cl- off a cliff? Mm. Where is the weirdest place you've discovered a squirtle? Let us know. Podcast at natelangson.com. But there's been a change, a proposed change, Ian, to the UK's driving test system. And this is fascinating to me. Fascinating that it hasn't happened sooner, if anything. But the Driver and Vehicle Standards Agency, that's the DVSA, has started testing the idea of sat-navs being used in the driving test. So these these tests are basically going to involve drivers having to follow directions solely by sat-nav. They're not allowed to look at road signs. They're going to be judged based on their ability to listen to the readouts from a sat-nav system. This suggestion which is currently being trialed by about four and a half thousand learner drivers about 850 instructors 
This is ahead of a potential rollout next year. It's being touted as the biggest change in the British driving testing system since 1996, 20 years ago, where the theory test was brought into use. And for some of our overseas listeners, I don't know how similar your driving tests are, but here you have to obviously prove you can drive a car. You also have to sit in a sweaty office room and in front of a very old computer screen and, uh, and and prove you can you understand the theory behind things like road signs and Ian um, what's your take on this because I'm not a driver so to me this seems smart but I don't know how much it would benefit me in a testing situation or hinder me what's your view on this well it's a good idea isn't it if if um, if people are going to be very very reliant on sat navs it could be a good way of assessing whether or not they have the right attitude to it so for example you you have to really be quite aware when you're using a sat-nav that it, they aren't the be-all and end-all and they will sometimes lead you astray. And that's, that's especially true in this country where we have a lot of sort of little roads that lead nowhere and, and things like that. You know, it's quite easy to get into a position in this country where you're driving down a road that suddenly becomes a field um, and then suddenly becomes a cliff and then before you know it, you're plun- plunging to your death. Um, so if they were testing to make sure people were smartly using sat-navs. But I don't know how you'd do that, really. I don't, you'd have to give people a broken sat-nav that, you know, told them to go down a one-way street that wasn't a one-way street or something like that, you know, or t- t- as an idea. Um, and then then perhaps it would test their ability to understand that you cannot just simply take the instructions of a sat-nav and then, you know, do what it says. On the other hand, of course, uh, the skill of being able to use a sat-nav while driving is something that I don't think I would have had at 17 when I was trying to pass my driving test. So uh, that's actually probably a smart idea because obviously it does involve looking at a screen. Um, there's a way to safely you know, to put the postcode in before you set off. Obviously, these are all things that I would expect they would test if they were going to do that. So I, can, I, I don't think it's a ridiculous idea. I think it would probably be smarter to teach people to read a map um, because I think that's an actual life skill. Um, sat-navs are pretty foolproof, but I can see the logic. Interesting. Well, this is going to be in public consultation now uh, until the 25th of August. I'm looking at the public consultation website on gov.uk. It was published on the 14th of July. So it's got about six or seven weeks that this is going to uh, be tested out. And then if, if they do want to bring these changes in, they'll come into effect next year. Now, relatedly, the UK has also taken a few steps towards laws for autonomous cars. And this also is in consultation. This was also first announced a few weeks ago, wasn't it, in the Queen's speech, a couple of months maybe uh, ago. And the announcement was they were going to be paying attention to how the UK is going to respond to the future onslaught of driverless cars and more relaxed drivers taking their hands off the wheel, for example. So this public consultation has been launched. One of the items in the public consultation concerns insurance. And the government has actually put forward a couple of scenarios that it hopes will sort of steer, if you will, the discussion between the parties involved in this situation. So here's one of the government's suggestions. Uh, If the driver is at fault, which is basically through directly, uh, you know, taking the reins in an autonomous car and causing a crash, or using the autonomous tech inappropriately, and I think the language will probably need to be firmed up in the final version, then they are going to be liable. So in an insurance situation, if you've used the technology in a way it was not intended, and that can be proven probably by the on-board telemetry or data, 
or you've uh, somehow directly caused the, the you know a fault yourself then you're going to be liable however that if the technology is fault the manufacturer is going to be on the hook so these are going to be instances where let's say a car merges lanes crashes into another car by the time you've got your hands on the wheel you're upside down and everything's on fire and everything's ruined in that sort of situation it seems the the manufacturer would be the you know having to put up the bill here now that seems to me fairly predictable i'm not sure what your view on this is in yeah, I mean, I it is, and you're absolutely right. I mean, these are it's the kind of the three robotics things, isn't it? You know, like a, it, it's quite easy to program a car to follow rules. Um, it's not so easy to get a person to n- not interfere with things. And I think, you know, I think it's quite obvious, isn't it, that cars don't crash, um, you know, because of a lack of humans. It's because of humans that cars crash, and robots are going to be a lot better at driving them. Um, but I don't know. I, the whole driverless cars thing raises so many questions, um, and it makes me a bit sad, really, because I think I'm going to miss driving. But I've, well, I think we're a few years away from it, aren't we? We are. I mean, the devil will be in the details for something like this. I mean, generally speaking, whenever you put a limitation on technology, somebody figures out a way to hack their way around it. And it seems that given the amount of data that is on board with these machines and the fact that theoretically we could have a situation where you, your insurer will give you preferential rates if you have some monitoring device installed in your system that that tracks you know your alertness for example or you know any modifications you've made to the vehicle perhaps then they can more easily determine whether you are at fault or the manufacturer the driver the uh, the manufacturer of the car was at fault that seems yeah. possible to me yeah and i mean i uh, the things that worry me about this i mean i i, I can see manufacturers having to be liable but i again i I've, you've got to be very careful with that haven't you because it's you don't want to stifle the innovation and accidents will happen and that's unfortunate and obviously horrifying if you're involved and if there's any fatalities but it's very difficult isn't it to objectively look at that kind of thing and say well would an accident have happened if there had been a human involved and to give the example of that tesla that crashed on um, autopilot uh, we, did, we didn't really talk about this did we but the, well, we didn't but it was t- it, it did come out that the autopilot was switched off uh, it was was it well i mean it, that it doesn't really matter whether it was on or off it, it, it's actually interesting um from the perspective of sort of saying well if it was on you know would the would the human have been able to stop the accident and from what had come out early it didn't seem like that would have been possible. It, it, it felt like one of those accidents where no computer or robot or human would have been able to react quickly enough because of the way it happened. And in those situations, it's a lot of people are going to get very angry because families grieve and part of the grieving process is obviously blaming somebody. And that's just going to end up with lawsuits, isn't it? And, you know, that's uh, it would be a shame to stifle you know, innovation based on an unavoidable thing happening. Um, And of course, there will be times when, you know, self-driving cars will be to blame. But I mean, that worries me too, for a different set of reasons. But hey, you know, I'm glad that the UK is being a little bit progressive about it in terms of thinking about it in advance and trying to get it sort of happening, because I think it could be a huge boon. It will make things safer long term. Indeed. Well, one of the other interesting changes is to do with our our highway code, our our general rules of the road. Very old document, you know, seems to be seldom updated with radical 
technological shifts in society. Uh, but one of the interesting rules that's probably going to have to be shifted is right now this Highway Code Rule 60 that states that you should have both hands on the wheel where possible and maintaining full control of your vehicle at all times. Now, that rule is not going to make much sense if a robot's driving your car. So we'll have no. to see some tweaks to the traditional wording made if we move into a driverless society cars or otherwise who knows let us know your thoughts on this and particularly if you've taken a driving test and been one of the people that's had to do a sat nav portion as we discussed earlier that'll be very interesting to hear about as well podcast at natelangson.com coming up i'm extremely excited because i'm going to be doing a dramatic reading of a harry potter chapter as written by an AI. And we've also got an interview with the gentleman who created the AI. First, it's time to check in briefly overseas with Tom Merritt. Tom, if listeners are hungry for a deep dive on tech, what could they check out on the Daily Tech News Show feed from the last few days? Thanks, Nate. This week on Daily Tech News Show, Peter Wells discussed e-voting in Australia. We discovered how the kitchen may be the foothold that brings about the long-promised smart home. Decided just how long that Pokemon Go craze is going to last. Dug into the extremely vague and scary nature of the U.S. Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. And decided Tesla probably should not change the name of its autopilot feature. At least Justin decided that. And we learned from Shannon Morris just why TV shows are getting hacking right these days. All that and more at DailyTechNewsShow.com. Back to you, Nate. Thank you. Tom. Now, earlier this week, I read something fascinating on Medium in a Medium post written by a gentleman called Max Deutsch, who is a a computer scientist, a developer based out in San Francisco. Now, he had trained a deep learning algorithm, if you like, to understand the first four Harry Potter books. And then he suggested, well, he made the AI produce a chapter based on what it, the AI had, had learned from processing all the text, the complete text of the first four Harry Potter books. And he published the results on Medium in a blog post. There are five parts to the post that he wrote, and all sort of focusing, it seems, on a slightly different part of the would-be novel that the AI has written. Now, I thought it would be an interesting thing to incorporate into the show in some way. So I'm going to do a dramatic reading for you of this first part as written by an AI that has read the first four Harry Potter novels. So this is without any human intervention. This is the novel that the AI wrote. The Malfoys, said Hermione. Harry was watching him. He looked like Madame Maxime when she strode up the wrong staircase to visit himself. (laughs) I'm afraid I've definitely been suspended from power. No chance. Indeed, said Snape. He put his head back behind them and read groups as they crossed a corner and fluttered down onto their ink lamp and picked up his spoon. The doorbell rang. It was a lot cleaner down in London. Hermione yelled, The party must be thrown by Crumb, of course. Harry collected fingers once more with Malfoy. Why, didn't she never tell me she vanished. And then Ron, Harry noticed, was nearly right. Now be off, said Sirius. I can't trace a new voice. He punished Uncle Vernon, so loudly that she could barely use it with Victor Crumb, these faces in one side of their previous year. Mr Dursley again was this champion. He was about to give the rememberall there. Every time he picked it up, 
up the marble staircase toward Fred, who was rolling with pain. Stinking, cowardly, scummy thing to do. Terrible. One were covered in weird ink. The classes became small and fluttering off her sharp eyes. Read it aloud. That's the end. (laughs) It's just nonsense. Total nonsense. Pretty funny, though. Yeah, it is funny, but what? Uh, some of it isn't even grammatically correct. Now, I would have thought that an AI would have at least be able to get grammar. What I found quite interesting about this is that it's picked out the characters correctly. You know, it can tell that the Malfoys are a thing. Yeah. We've got mentions of Hermione, Snape, Harry, obviously. You know, this is, this is quite, quite good. Uh, so I wanted to find out how this came to be, how the whole system works. So I did what anyone would do and email the chap who invented it max deutsch and ask him to tell me about how it works over the skypes so i started by asking him what system he was using to create this uh, this um, experiment what i use is what's known as a recurrent neural network um, and ultimately uh, what that means is it's a collection of of nodes that has different probabilities so you can almost think about it as you feed the Harry Potter text to this black box and this black box says, okay, how can I group these words in in a probabilistic way um, based on trends that I see in the sample text? So which words um, have, are are seen together uh, and and really creating just this, these synapses, if you want to go with the neural network analogy between the different words um, and the different probabilities that those words are shown together. Um, And so ultimately what the tech does is it says, okay, I create all these connections between all the different words in the sample text, for example, Harry Potter. Um, And then what I want to know is, uh, or if I want to generate a new text, I'll start with a seed word, so a starting word, let's say the word the. Um, And then based on the probabilities that the computer figures out, um, I'll ask the computer, okay, here's the first word, the. What do you think the second word is? Uh, And it will guess the second word. And then based on those first two words, what do you think the third word is? And and so on. Uh, And ultimately... The, the computer generates the text in that way. And it's very similar to how your phone might um, auto-suggest or auto-complete a sentence while you're texting, for example. What was your goal with this? I mean, when you went into you know, making this, did you, was there something in particular you wanted to learn or test out in particular that you can now learn from as a result? Yeah, I was really just interested in sort of getting an intuitive understanding of um, how deep learning works from the standpoint of how complex the model has to be, or you know, if you have the levers on the model side and you could ratchet up the complexity of the model, and then also understanding um, how big a data set needs to be to get reasonably interesting results. So the Harry Potter piece that I published um, ended up being you know, interesting enough to publish, but I tried a bunch of different layers. So the piece I published was uh, just sampling the first four books. I tried with only one book. I tried with seven books, um, and that gave me a, an intuitive sense of runtime. For example, so with one book, uh, the algorithm finished super quick, but it made very little sense. Um, I started running seven books all on my personal computer, um, and it was taking uh, far too long. So you know, I, I killed that. So I was trying to find something, get a feel for um, the timing on that side, and then on the the model side. Uh, the actual model I use is like a pretty simplistic flavor of, of neural nets. You know, you could do deep learning ultimately is uh, a type of neural net where you're saying there's going to be a lot of layers, right? So the depth of the number of neurons you have is really large. Um, the depth that I use is is two. So it's like barely deep. 
Um, but again, that was enough to generate interesting results um, while maximizing um, the the time it took to, to finish. And I, I did run it overnight, so it, you know, it still did take some time. But anyway, ultimately, I was just trying to get an intuitive sense of if I play with these different levers, what what's the output going to look like? Yeah. Was there a reason you chose Harry Potter, incidentally, over you know any other uh, novel series? Yeah, I think for two reasons, right? The first reason is that Harry Potter's source text, I think, has a, one really identifiable, unique characters and um, vocabulary. Um, and also, J.K. Rowling has a very distinctive writing style. And so I was interested to see if that would be captured. I think it's part one. Part two is uh, the appeal of Harry Potter. Um, you know, I, I went on after Harry Potter and I tried uh, applying the same tech to the HBO show Silicon Valley, the scripts from the show. Um, and I also did um, songs from Hamilton, the, the musical. Um, and so th- that was interesting. But I think for those, the audience is definitely much narrower. narrower. So, um, yeah, I think that the appeal of Harry Potter um, lets a lot of people appreciate the output, uh, which is, I guess, another reason. Well, personally, I was massively entertained by all this, Ian. Um, I think it's well worth reading the other four parts of Max's experiment here. If you, um, the URL is quite long on Medium, but if you go to text message, if you go to the, the natelangston.com forward slash podcast, I'll make sure there's a link straight to this Medium post for any curious passersby to go and, uh, go and have a read and see the, the rest. There are some very, very funny lines in the rest of this post as well. I only wanted to pick one part out to read because it felt a bit cheeky otherwise but there's a great one to do with uh, something to do with Dumbledore rolling in cream something along those lines <laughs> so uh, that's it natelangston.com slash podcast find the link go and read it it's awesome last up then Ian I wanted to talk it's a bit promo-y this but I'm quite excited about it Sky has revealed its 4K lineup for the Sky Cube. Uh, thing that's going to launch in August, I believe, or the, the 4K service mm, that's on it that's is going to launch right. in, yeah, yeah. in August. Now, I've bought a 4K television relatively recently, and I'm still slightly disappointed with how little content there is available that I want to watch. So Netflix, most of the stuff that it creates uh, is not of any interest to me at all, and that seems to be the best place to get 4K content. So I'm quite intrigued about whether I should be signing up to this Sky Q thing. Ian, do you want to talk us through what this is? Well, Sky Q is um, it's more than just 4K. It's kind of like a reimagining of the whole Sky ecosystem. It gives you a lot of the features that I've always moaned about being missing from Sky that are, you know, easily technically possible, but just not something you could ever do within the Sky ecosystem. And Sky's quite closed for a bunch of reasons, but, you know, I understand why. I'm I'm not thrilled about it, but it's one of those things. Um, So, for example, you're able now to have... I think it's something like each box has something like 12 tuners. Um, And it's done in a completely different way. So you still only have two cables coming from your satellite dish. They're interpreted by the box, which gives you all these tuners. You can then stream footage from you know from that main tuner box to other tuners in your house at 1080p uh, that can work over wi-fi or it can be cabled in i believe um so it really just gives you 
it takes away the hassle from the multi-room thing, uh, whereas before you would need satellite cables going to each room. So obviously there's a, a move towards 4K as well, and Sky's always been at the forefront of picture quality, I think. I mean, you know, 1080p stuff, it, oh, not 1080p, I don't think as it, as it goes it's 1080i, but it, it looks very good on Sky. They've always pioneered good quality movies and sport. Um, so having 4K is a nice addition. That's the thing. That's the thing that I really care about here. Yeah. Because, I mean, I, I read a, a, a study the other day that said that something like one, like 1.7 million homes in the UK already have 4K TVs, which yeah. is it's like 6% of the population or something. And I don't know where they're getting any of their 4K content from because I've got damn near every streaming service you can <laughs> imagine in this house and I've only got a bit of 4k and none of it's of interest i've watched literally one 4k film ever one and how did you find it well it's a lego movie ah so, you so know, not an ideal candidate not for an 4K ideal candidate then. no no but so the sky q thing it's going to have about 70 4k movies it's yeah, got a bunch of good, sport ball that i've no interest in formula one next year a bunch of documentaries like there's some stuff and my hope is just that they haven't got the exclusivity on this so that those things can come to another streaming service. Well, they, well. Might, they might do. But um, really, with Sky, it's not going to be about TV as such. That Sport will be big, but you won't care about that. That's fine. Movies, it will have some, but those w- I would, would have thought most of those would be available on either Amazon or Netflix, but that's perhaps not the case. Does Amazon um, stream 4K? Amazon does stream 4K, yes. And Amazon will also be doing HDR, as will Netflix this year. Sky is a little bit behind with HDR, but for a good reason, because there's still there's still some arguments about the standardisation of HDR. Um, so that will come a bit later. Um, I think if you're hoping for things like Game of Thrones, I mean, you don't watch Game of Thrones, do you? But things no. like that in 4K, again, that's, that's a weight you're going to have to bear for a while because there's no such thing as I don't know HBO and companies like that are just not doing 4k yet the BBC isn't doing 4k um so really it is just going to be about movies and sport which is fine but again I I don't think it's going to be the thing you're looking for I don't think you're suddenly going to have a wealth of stuff that you absolutely can't miss because I don't think that it you, the, the movies that turn up on Sky might not be to your taste anyway so I think the wait continues honestly um, Fair enough. And also, way to, well, way to temper my excitement there. Well, I'm sorry, but I, d- I mean, it, the thing is, you, you don't sound like you're prepared to pay for Sky Q anyway. So the the argument is somewhat moot, isn't it? Um, but what I will say as well is that you have to have a TV that supports HDMI 2.2, I believe it is, or is it HDCP 2.2? I don't know. It's a very recent um, standard, so you have to be very careful because if you don't have that, it won't work. Um, so it's v- worth checking that you have the right TV, and that would exclude a certain number of 4K TVs that were sold a while ago. All right. Well, I'm going to go back to my little hole crying about my lack of 4K content oh, to exploit my, my new TV. But in the meantime, I hope everybody has a great week, and let us know any feedback or questions or ideas you have for the show podcast at natelangson.com. And on that note... See you in a week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.